0: Good afternoon everyone. It's nice to see so many faces. Um, I'm just coming from up the road. I'm at another, another conference where we've been talking about Ukraine for the last two days. So my head is sort of everywhere. Um, but what I noticed at the conference that I just came from um, and uh, something that actually um, I guess I think Brooks did a fantastic job you know, in his talk was sort of the idea that Ukrainians are missing from this conversation. And I'm going to do right now a little bit of what Luke just did is kind of push back against my disciplines uh, and question where the voices of Ukrainians are in these conversations and especially within political science and international relations, but also within many of these policy circles and media accounts. Uh, the absence of Ukrainians uh, is I mean, very clear, at least uh, for me as a member of the diaspora and as someone who's been working on Ukraine for the last 10 years. Um, I've spent a great deal of my life in the country, and so for me, um, elevating the voices of Ukrainians uh, is very important, and I'm really glad to see not only many individuals on the program today, but many Ukrainians and some of my own collaborators in the audience, because I think that these voices are really important and something that we really need to listen to whenever we are talking about peace in any capacity, sustainable, even in a temporary sense, but especially in the country going forward. The reason that I say this is because these are the images that have been dominating uh, you know, much of our media uh, since the 24th of February uh, 2022. Uh, this is a map that was from the 24th of February, and as you can see, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine in many directions. Uh, images associated with this have really been dominant in our media. Um, But they have changed over time. Um, And here's a map, this is from uh, mid-March, so it's not necessarily the most accurate one, but it shows that we have seen, you know, developments uh, throughout the country in the last year and a bit. Um, But still, we are still thinking about Ukraine, you know, kind of through this lens, many of us in this audience probably now know a lot more about Ukraine, including at the regional level. Um, You know probably where Kharkiv is, maybe Kherson, Maribold, et cetera, from these maps that we're seeing in the news. We're also seeing uh, many of these images, um, many of which um, Brooks just painted for us, right? These women and children, these elderly people um, fleeing the country um, on foot um, by bus, um, many of them in buildings that have been attacked. Um, you know, they have been these, these have been very much the images of what we've seen of, of Ukraine in the last year. But also, there have been other discussions um, dominating social media, especially Instagram and Twitter, um, due to Ukrainians' uh, creativity in using social media for their cause. Uh, We've seen some of these images, we've seen memes, um, in particular this one with the tractor and the tank, um, as well as just cities being liberated, like Kherson, and the the nationalist expressions um, when these these cities have been liberated when these people are able to take back and move back uh, to their cities and homes. But with this, we don't really know much about what Ukrainians think or what they're experiencing amidst the war, except for the accounts of individuals as they're leaving. But we can't, and as political scientists, we have there is significant difficulties in trying to research the country while the war is ongoing. However, it is so important for us to know what they think um, in order for us to address or to help Ukraine in any capacity. So for this reason, um, last year in February I received a John Fell Fund uh, research grant from the university for a completely different project in Ukraine. I had the funds and believed it was no longer ethical to do the research that I had done. Uh, And so what I did is I contacted a think tank in Ukraine who I was previously in touch with and I asked them what they thought was the most necessary for Oxford researchers to do at that time. For them, there was no public opinion polling happening in the country and they believed it was really important to, for us to know how Ukrainians saw the war, but saw themselves and especially the foreign policy ambitions of the people. So with this, um, uh, uh, well I'll get back to this in a second. Um, a scholar of mine, or a colleague of mine, the DPIR, decided to run a public opinion survey. With this, um, and also kind of motivating um, our stance was much of the media that had been dominating the discussions about the war, often framing the war as though it started on the 24th of February, but forgetting that this was something that had been happening for uh, nine years. And for many Ukrainians, many of them in this room, we can attest to the fact that 2014 was a significant turning point uh, for Ukrainians, uh, not only from the Euromaidan in 2013, 2014, but the annexation of Crimea and then the beginning of the war in Donbass. The, Ukraine, the Russia-Ukraine war was an international and has been an international conflict, um, backed by Russian separatists, by Russia and also Ukrainians. And it's very, very complex and there's many different nuances here, but it's not just been or it has not just been a 12 month conflict, it's been a 12 month plus 8 year conflict, or now even a 13 or 14 months uh, plus 8 years. This is something that is really important for any conversation about peace and that this is not something um, new that has come about in the last few years, especially in the eyes of Ukrainians. This has been happening at a very local level. I've worked with families of war and orphan children for five years in the country. Um, this, uh, the horrors, the atrocities, and um, these stories of trauma are very entrenched in uh, very much a new generation of people who are now have been living with conflict for going on 10 years. This is really important for us to remember when we're thinking about peace. Um, I threw up some numbers here, um, just estimates for us to remind ourselves that there have been significant losses. Uh, this is not at all to undermine what we've seen since February, but just as a reminder that um, you know, these losses are not new and they have been ongoing for a significant, uh, mil- uh, significant period of time, and that there have also been many, many people internally displaced and also displaced within Europe um, since 2014 and not only since 2022. Still, um, we've seen significant Ukrainian resistance, um, and these are just some um, very uh, simple visual. uh, For us to remind ourselves that when Russia did invade in in 2022, there was a significant imbalance between Ukraine's state, especially within its military, its combat capabilities, uh, and Russia. Um, But with this, and as we've seen, um, Ukraine has continued to defend itself despite the significant losses, which we don't often talk about, and this is a really important reality. We do talk often about the Russian losses, but there have been significant losses on the Ukrainian side. Yet they were, and they began this um, counteroffensive in uh, February 2022 with a significant imbalance in inequality, but yet they have continued to fight despite that. Still, it's important for us to know what Ukrainians are thinking. So my colleague Carl and I, um, at the time, we ran um, a public opinion survey in 11 regions of Ukraine. Uh, only the 11 regions we were able to, uh, to get ethics approval at the time uh, because they were only under Ukraine's control and they hadn't been directly affected within the first uh, immediate months. And so those are the places we had, they're highlighted in red. These are the regions that uh, we had, um, were able to access. What we are doing with this think tank is trying to compare their data that they, or they've been collecting from February 2021, a year before the invasion, December 2021, so three months before the invasion, and then days before the invasion in 2022 in February. And so I'm going to go through just some brief graphs for you to understand. this. Again, these, this survey in particular was conducted in May, so just about three months after uh, Russia's invasion. So the the first question that had previously been asked in February 2022, before the invasion, was who do you think is primarily responsible for the growing threat? Because This is what it was at the time. Um, As you can see the numbers there, um, significant in Russia. But when the question was asked again um, in May 2022, we see a a greater, a significantly growing uh, increase in terms of it being the leadership of Russia and also the citizens of Russia. Uh, This question is important because, especially in the first few months post-invasion, the rhetoric uh, within the international community was very much about NATO expansion and EU expansion, why that's who was guilty and that was responsible for this. Yet, in the eyes of Ukrainians, it was not that. As you can see here, it was actually, um, in their eyes, it was Russia and Russian civil society. Um, Again, similar question, asking um, your interpretation on the events. We see see here that the war is a consequence of Russia's foreign... um, for aggressive foreign policy position, rather than the consequence of perhaps NATO expansion or Ukraine joining the EU. Or sorry, joining NATO. Uh, similarly, and I think this is a quite interesting one: the changing uh, views and allyship. So um, this is again from February two thousand twenty-two, before the invasion, to May two thousand twenty-two. We see significant growing support for uh, the UK, the US, uh, yeah, the UK, the US, and um, Poland. Again, this is not particularly surprising. Um, Poland is a very obvious reason um, and the help that they have given so substantially. The U.S. being a significant ally. But at this time, um, Boris Johnson had been the first Prime Minister to visit Ukraine since the invasion. And so we can't really deduce whether this was actually how uh, Ukrainians felt or because Boris Johnson had been um, so active in the news and he had been that first um, Western leader there. In any case, it is interesting to see such significant uh, growing support. And if we weren't, I will be running this survey again uh, in May, um, and we'll see what's been happening in the the last year. Another interesting one is uh, just seeing the significant growth in in support for Ukrainian support for joining the EU um, going up, um, I believe it's 13 percentage points, um, in which it's gone up. This very much supports, um, even though it was only in 11 regions, this is the same finding that we, uh, several other teams of scholars, um, including a team based at Manchester, have found with more regions uh, included, is that there has been, if anything, the war has actually increased Ukrainian supports for joining the EU and arguably NATO, although we don't have that question in ours. And this is again from that same group of scholars. They've also seen a growing support for democracy and support uh, of Ukrainians believing in Ukraine becoming a democratic state. This is not my data, but I thought it was interesting and important to show because this is often a question that I'm asked when we talk about uh, this data. Uh, And Belarus is also something we often think about. What is Belarus's position here? Um, Again, prior to the invasion, up to May, Ukrainians have suggested that there's a growing fear um, and that Belarus is playing a role um, in this and more so than they had prior to the invasion. This might change now and when I ask the same survey again, we might see some different results because Belarus hasn't been um, as active or at least as a a location in which Russia can attack Ukraine. However, they still have not been neutral and they have been um, active in this. And so it's hard to say whether this uh, will hold or whether we might see some changes here. Finally, and what I think is really important um, with this survey uh, is around concessions, because this is also a conversation <coughs> that at the time in the first three months, but especially now, we're still talking about what will Ukraine give up in order for peace? What is what is Ukraine willing to uh, concede? As you can see in this survey, I mean, Ukrainians said 78% of them said they uh, they will not support any concessions. Um, still within this question, my colleague and I felt that it was um, a little bit too vague and that 78% is a very strong position but we wanted to tease that out a little bit more to see if there was perhaps anything uh, in that. So we added another um, another question in there and what we can see is that their only or the only bit of movement um, would really be around humanitarian issues and specifically around humanitarian corridors. If you remember back in May and April uh, 2022 uh, we saw signif- a significant number of attacks on humanitarian corridors as Ukrainians are being evacuated. So this does align with what was happening on the ground, and I'm sure Brooks could attest to that. Um, you know, there was significant fear, and I do believe that this is where the um, Ukrainian's position came from. Nevertheless, um, you know this really prompted us to think about. Um, what else is important to ukrainians because if we're going to talk about concession we also need to know what and how they feel about their country their political autonomy um, especially their territorial integrity so this led to a second um, ex- a second conjoint survey experiment led by again my colleague and also another colleague at Nuffield. i'm only going to go into this very briefly but really the message um, that i want to take away is in the next slide as you can see we were able to add some additional regions um, and again these are only regions that individuals um, had not or that were under Ukrainian control and that we only surveyed individuals who had not fled or left their homes since uh, Russia's invasion. Um, this is sort of an understanding of that's how we chose our sample. Um, any of these regions, um, these are sort of the initial where the initial attacks were. Um, we Had a selected SUMI, SUMI's highlighted up there. SUMI was originally in our sample, but during uh, data collection, we actually had to drop uh, the sample because individuals there were so skeptical of our enumerators on the ground thinking that they were acting on behalf of Russia. So if anything, this amongst many stories just articulates the challenges of any research being conducted in Ukraine at this time, not even speaking about the ethics and potential re-traumatization that come with conducting research. In any case, though, we were able to gather um, significant amount of data And what we found in this, uh, through our experiment, is essentially that Ukrainians um, are not trading off um, the costs and benefits of war, as we've seen in every single context um, in which we can find in the literature, in that uh, there is not a threshold of civilian or military deaths, or even a nuclear strike that would uh, deter them from continuing to fight. Um, What we found, I mean, 79% of uh, individuals said that first and foremost, uh, for them, controlling their political system, controlling their government was first and foremost important. And the second uh, is that the territory of their country, including Donbas and Crimea are um, fundamental to them and that they are willing to continue to fight until these are uh, sustained. Uh, this is really important for us as political scientists, as policymakers, um, anyone really interested in the discussion to know that if Ukrainians are not going to fight um, thinking about or giving them the conversation or suggestion that they should negotiate is off the table, and that we need to think about creative ways to work with Ukrainians if this is how definitively their position is. Still, and I want to end on a positive note, because I think that um, this is a conversation it's not entirely bleak, and I think Brooks um, highlighted this too when talking about the local level. We have seen um, significant grassroots support in a way that perhaps would be unexpected um, in times of war, this is again from my colleagues in manchester but we can see a significant number of individuals engaging in grassroots organizations donating funds cooking helping the military in many different ways not just fighting on the front lines uh, this is it continues to grow and their numbers here they say 61 percent in the top blue but it's even more in um, the more contemporary days this second survey was in may 2022 and they've continued to run uh, polls since then <coughs> In addition, in my own work, I've been looking at new expressions of the nation and other um, active, but perhaps different ways in which Ukrainians have been expressing their nation and fighting for, um, for Ukraine. These are photos of music being expressed underground in bomb shelters across the country. We have professional violin players, for example, playing to keep the morale and the spirit up, um, you know, trumpeteers, we also see this art, this incredible art being painted onto the sides of the bomb shelters. Uh, the one on the left is by children in Chernihiv. As you can see through the colors, there is this, you know, this sense of nationalism as expressions to support uh, and fight for your nation, even you know, perhaps in a different way. Uh, finally, these are just another example, including uh, you know, a famous uh, Ukrainian musician who's traveled across the country. This is in Kharkiv, um, singing and really boosting the morale of citizens. So this reminds us that there is much more happening than those images I showed you at the beginning. Um, And with that, I just want to leave us sort of with four final questions that perhaps can stimulate discussion later. One, you know, how do we account for Ukrainians' agency when we're talking about the war? Um, As you can tell, I believe this is fundamental. Two, how do we talk about Ukrainians' agency or give agency when talking about peace? Because uh, Ukrainians need to be elevated in these discussions as well. Three, what does peace look like for Ukrainians when Russia will be um, and is always going to be Ukraine's neighbor? How do we understand that um, and how do Ukrainians understand that fundamentally? And finally, keeping Ukrainians' views in minds, what does support for Ukraine actually look like? With that, I thank you for your time and hope we can continue this conversation later. <laughs>